Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jivraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode, I speak with Nami Zaringla, co-founder and chairman of Truecaller on incredible ambition. Truecaller is a legendary institution delivering value to more than to 70 million users from across the world in india it is the third most downloaded application after facebook and whatsapp having more than 200 million users cumulatively this spectacular company which has made life easier for millions of us was started by two engineers from sweden in nami's kitchen both nami and alin have always had an incredible ambition and it is this unwavering ambition that has helped them create a truly global viral and scalable solution to our communication problems true caller is terrifically special in more ways than one and the story of nami as a founder is amazingly inspirational i am extremely fortunate and honored to have discussed with nami the learnings he picked up over the last 12 years of building this one of a kind global company through our discussion we touch upon the viral loop of true caller the organic growth playbook discovered by their team and further dive deeper into their culture and the secrets of how to truly innovate at scale thus let's dive in to the 49th episode of the indian silicon valley podcast incredible ambition with nami of true caller thank you so much nami for joining me it's such an honor for me to be able to host you thanks jiraj for having me uh, it's a great podcast i've been listening for some time now and really appreciate your uh, interviews it's fun to hear other entrepreneurs journey great to hear that nami i mean i'm so so excited for this episode especially because true caller is special in more ways than one the originality the virality the growth the global footprint i could go on and on and we probably will through this episode but to get started i want to touch upon virality right virality in my opinion is perhaps the single most important and black box factor in every entrepreneur's mind because everyone who sets out to build a consumer product is probably looking to someday claim that they can get to 200 300 million monthly active users but you've not just been able to claim that you've been able to achieve that at scale and we can see a live example of it right so now that you have that benefit of hindsight maybe if you could talk to us about how virality was built into the product and what are your learnings from being able to build it on a viral scale i think that would be great to hear and wonderful to grasp for all budding entrepreneurs listening yeah for sure so uh, you know to start off with i i should mention that uh, virality wasn't really something that we initially built for like we didn't have a blueprint uh, saying you know we should do this and that etc we were just trying to build a product really for ourselves my co-founder Alan and me we were engineers we just put stuff together you know and and made it work and and uh, it just so happened that a lot of people really liked that product and and had the same kind of problems that we had it wasn't until later 
that we realized what really made the the product go viral. Like we had, you know, an incident, like a, a chat with uh, one of our um, one of our users that we met at uh, an event, and he was telling us that you know the first time he got to know about True Color, it was because his friend asked him to give his father's phone number. Uh, his friend would then tell him the name of his father, and he, his mind was blown when he his friend got uh, got to know or said the name of uh, his father you know that kind of oral uh, virality has really been uh, one of the strengths of true color and it's something that uh, we definitely haven't taken for granted but we didn't know it existed uh, in that way we thought of virality in the same way that you thought of virality when it comes to you know, for a while, I mean, the company was started back in 2009 and we started to work full time in 2010. But for a while, you know, you got blinded by the kind of growth hacks that you heard, you know, Facebook do and, you know, all these different companies that did growth hacks. And we tried to learn from them as well in, in terms of like, you know, when do you ask for a user to review your app? When do you ask for the user to do this, et cetera, to, to kind of share something in the app, et cetera, to create a virality? And those things definitely did help. I don't want to say that they didn't help, but I think the base use case was so strong that, you know, anything that we did was kind of really tiny compared to the virality that the product got inherently kind of. Yeah, yeah, I completely understand because I know the joy that comes in when, you know, unknown numbers calling and True Caller can tell you the name of it. And I'm sure every one of us listening has experienced that as well. So superb to hear that, but to take it forward from there and understand the growth loops that you perhaps utilized from within the vantage point that you had, how did you replicate the growth, organic growth that you talk about from different geographies and couple it to multiple other places and ensure that from perhaps 5,000 downloads a day to the 500,000 mark that you talk about, how did you achieve that level of growth and what was the road towards it? If you could perhaps tell us about that and spill a couple of secrets, I think that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, you know the the main experience of true color when when you're expecting the caller id and the call blocking to work as we advertise it then you know you need to meet the level of accuracy that the user is expecting we have a kpi internally which we call hit rate it's similar to um, you know if you would be using any search engine let's say google and, and uh, you uh, search for something, out of 10 times, how many times do we actually get you a response with an accurate uh, name? And, and once we figured that, and this was back in tw 2012, we realized that this KPI was actually the, the thing that was making the app go viral because there was uh, you know, a, a stage where you got from you know, zero to 30% uh, that uh, you had one to three star reviews. Basically, people were not satisfied with the experience. And then there was a stage between 30 and let's say 70% where you had, uh, you know, three to four star reviews. 
And I'm not saying reviews made it go viral. I'm just using that to kind of measure the satisfaction level of the users. And then when you got past those 70%, that's really when things get viral and you start to see these five-star reviews and people are raving about it. We saw this first in Lebanon. We uh, tried to replicate it by acquiring uh, users in a market that we thought was similar to Lebanon, which was Jordan. And, uh, you know, it happened there as well. So we thought, you know, to ourselves, we've found a growth engine. We know exactly what we need to do. Now we just need money to kind of expedite this process. And we went out to raise money. And at the time, you know, going on a tangent here, I'll get back in a moment. But, you know, at the time, you know, the investors we were meeting, they were all like, yeah, but Facebook ID and Google Gmail ID is going to take over the world. So who cares about phone numbers? So we had a really tough time raising money. It didn't really help that we were growing in markets that were at the time not sexy. Like, you know, you go back to... 2012, 2013, no one cared about Middle East, no one cared about Africa, no one cared about India, right? It wasn't until thinking 2014 when suddenly, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, everyone woke up and suddenly India was the next frontier and everything, you know, everyone's investing and all these things. So we had a tough journey from that point of view. But one thing that we were really lucky on was that our numbers always went to the right so, so no matter how you were looking at it, like in terms of downloads, in terms of engagement, in terms of, you know, even monetization, we dabbled with for a while, everything was just going up and to the right. So, so there was something there, uh, you know, we tried to explain it, but, you know, it wasn't really that interesting. Now, going back to uh, the virality, there was a couple of other things that we did as well. One of the key learnings we had was that, you know, when we give you the caller ID, we should just put the true color logo there next to the the color ID with the name popping up. That gave us uh, recognition, a continuous recognition that was very positive for the brand. And when when you were showing the app off to someone, they would see that it's true color providing this value as opposed to you know your regular phone dialer, the one that comes with your device, because that's kind of what we were competing against. There was different dialers already on different phones. So it was hard to tell whether the, our pop-up at the time was the thing that provided the value or was it the call UI phone itself. So by just adding the logo at moments where we believe that we've added or created value for the user was a, like a, a really important uh, step for us. And uh, the third thing I wanted to mention was that, you know, we did try all these uh, growth hacks and like, yeah, you know, different things to expedite that process. But for us, those things worked as bursts. You know, it's uh, basically a one time, uh, twice, uh, you know, kind of burst thing that you can do. But then when you've done it, you can't keep doing it. Like it, it'll annoy the users, they'll uninstall, blah, 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 all these things. So so you have to be cautious about how you do these things. And that was also a learning because we've definitely had feedback from users where they thought that we were, you know, being annoying when we're asking, asking you to set us as, uh, you know, a default messaging app or default dialer, et cetera. And, and, you know, we see those things, we hear those things and we try to back off. But when you're in the growth stage and you're hungry for growth, you, you uh, try to push the limits and then you really realize like, oh, wait, I want to bar and then you back off. So uh, I think part of that was also just not being afraid of 
pushing the limits a bit. Uh, it's not it's not great to do continuously, but after uh, after once or twice that you've annoyed your users, you really realize where the limit is and and how you should position yourself for it. That's a journey in itself, like just learning those things from your users, like what they find uh, valuable and what they find reasonable uh, as a trade-off. Wow, I think that's phenomenal to hear. I mean, all of the things that you mentioned, including having that one metric and finding that North Star and then going after it all in. And also the last point where you talk about, you know, just realizing where the limits are, pushing yourself, but realizing where the limits are and indexing on the retention factor, which I also understand is a huge, huge number for to call it in itself. But since we're talking about numbers, we're at growth virality. Just like when I was researching, I was baffled to see. I understand that, you know, True Caller is great. It's probably the top five app in my phone. But when I was reading through, I honestly was baffled. And, you know, over 260 million odd monthly active users, top three downloaded apps after Facebook, WhatsApp. And the India story is, of course, phenomenal, which makes this episode even more special, right? So the underlying question is that, when you both started off, you and Alan, and you know, it was it started off from your kitchen, if I'm not wrong, right? And now to 250 odd team members who have more than 250 million odd customers, how do you manage and deal with such scale, right? Like, how do you internalize it? And are there any learnings that you've taken in the process of being able to blitzscale the organization, the team members, the consumer base, and still be very close to the consumer? Because it's not like you've scaled with an ignorance for the consumer. There are product features which keep coming out, which are innovating at the core of the company, right? And there is so much still happening. So, I'd love if you can, you know, take the next five minutes, talk to us about how scaling an organization truly works after you found perhaps that magic. Sure. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I think that's uh, that's a learning journey, not only as part of like how you structure an organization, but also in terms of your own leadership, like for, for me and Alan. So to start off with, you know, we had a typical structure of basically us co-founders, both being engineers, but also being like product managers. You know, we built we built a backend of Truecaller until we were we had about hundred million downloads. Um, at that point, you know, we had more more downtime than Twitter had back in, you know, 2013 with the fail whale and all that, uh, those things. So, uh, you know, we used to have downtime, maybe if some months we'd have a full week of downtime just because, you know, we weren't able to cope with the scale and we were writing everything in PHP and all these things. So it took, it took that failure until we realized that you know, we can't keep doing this and we're not good enough engineers. Uh, that's the point when we handed things over to our CTO, who was just dying to take things over from us and, and like rewrite everything and do it in a scalable way with microservices and this and that, etc. And we were so afraid of being disconnected from the engineering part of the org when that would happen. And slowly but surely that did happen. Like we did get disconnected in terms of, you know, writing code. Once you, like if, if you've ever been part of writing code uh, in a team, you know, even if you move beyond it, you start to realize like, okay, if 
you know, we're building this new feature. How, what are the potential solutions for that? And then you start to think about that. And it's actually really valuable because you can start to challenge folks as well on, you know, the way we're solving things, et cetera. Not necessarily like in the details, but structurally, like how you solve things. So I think that was the first learning journey for us. And at the time we had a structure that was basically, you know, engineering that was divided into front end and back end. And we have some, we had some product owners and basically me and Alan were both jointly PMs. The next thing for us was when we recruited Rishit Jundranwala to join us as VP of product. Then we started to, I mean, we needed to start to let go of product, you know, and, and that as well was difficult because, I mean, at times we had conflicting views of what the next steps should be, etc. But, you know, at the core of it, I always think that, or I've always seen that the most valuable product features that we have or like the most valuable assets that this company has built has always been built not by one person's idea, but rather by two or maximum three people involved, right? So you you have one person who initiates the idea and then talks to someone who adds to the idea. And then that one plus one equals three suddenly. And it was kind of the same thing with True Color to start off to start off with, because I was trying to solve my problem with, you know, not knowing who's calling or texting by looking at the caller ID feature. And then Alan was like, I need call blocking and I need these uh, spam uh, markings, etc. And, you know, one plus one suddenly became three. And, you know, the call blocking thing was a great acquisition channel. And then people really stuck around uh, as caller ID grew on them. So, you know, in a way, I feel like yeah, that's something that we want to retain. And in 2018, we basically had a team of, we had a team of 120 people or so. That's when we realized, like, you know, we were becoming really slow. The structure that we had was not, it wasn't meant for what we were doing. Now, a year prior to that, we had acquired this team, Chiller, in India, the fintech company. And when we acquired them, they came in with the promise that they will be able to continue their venture, but inside of Truecaller and inside the app, uh, not as a separate app, but inside that. And they would have full control. And initially, you know, there was some hiccups there, but pretty quickly, you know, they started to execute on their vision and it became like this uh, second, like a, a startup within the startup that was really doing fantastic things. And we, we uh, observed that and, and we learned from that. And then we said, you know, how can we make this be, be the thing that we do for, for uh, all teams? How can we restructure the company? So we basically restructured the company and what we have now and had since then, as, which has been very successful, is what we call business units. So every business unit has a BU lead. For uh, those business units, these uh, BU leads have the full mandate to do whatever they want within that capability. So calling team, for instance, messaging team, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a bunch of different teams. I think there's 11 of them and they have full authority to do what they want to do within that scope of the product. And then it really becomes key who you put as BU lead. And that person gets the mandate to either delegate or uh, take ownership of things themselves. So, you know, it becomes like mini CEOs within the company leading different verticals. And, and that's the way we've been able to, uh, to keep 
kind of innovating and and uh, allow the teams to uh, move forward. And then it, it becomes more like me, me and Alan and the rest of management really becomes more like editors, if you will, in a journalistic world. Uh, we're more like editors rather than the people that, you know, come up with the stories or actually execute on them, etc. The guys that just make sure that things are stringent, that we're following the direction that we're, we want to head into. Awesome. I think that's a different and very structured way of looking at organizations. What I love the most is you're so cognizant of accepting that, you know, this has been such a learning journey and the evident art of letting go, like you have to love the product, you have to build it out, but to achieve the level of scale that perhaps all entrepreneurs aspire to achieve and the scale at which True Collar does operate, you have to let go, you have to decentralize and you have to provide ownership to everyone else. That's that's phenomenal to hear. Thanks for sharing that, Nami. Further, I think, you know, I want to talk about the global footprint uh, that you've been able to establish, especially given rather non-conventional background that you come from, right? Because anybody who would hear the story of you and Alan building a global product with the kind of scale you've seen, perhaps top, I think, 10, 15 companies in the world have been able to see such scale. And the thing that goes into being able to create this sort of a company, I think if you can probably tackle it at its core and talk to us about your learnings from developing that global footprint, I think that would be great because your story is a testament and restores belief that no matter where you come from, you can truly build a global product and you've proved it at scale, right? So I think I'll leave the ball in your court and would love to hear how, you know, the global journey actually started, how you were able to scale and finally establish that footprint as well. So Truecaller was actually the third company for Alan and myself. We had two other ventures before that. The first one was a kind of a search engine for um, home interior. You know, it was basically crawling different e-commerces with home interior things and and, uh, listing prices and all these things. So you could compare and these kind of things. It wasn't very successful. It was actually pretty unsuccessful. But we learned uh, like our engineering skills a lot from doing that thing. The second one was similar to uh, Glassdoor, but before Glassdoor, it was basically, you know, we used the crawler from the first project, this uh, home interior search engine. We used that crawler to crawl all the businesses in Sweden and list them. And then you could log in anonymously and review your employer. Because um, at the time, that was a different issue that we, we were having that, you know, Alan was uh, working at a place and, and uh, wasn't very happy. Racist slurs and stuff like that. So, so, you know, we built that website out of our own need as well. Every time we learned more in terms of engineering and product and what works and what doesn't work. But we also got one bit of insight, which was very valuable for us when we entered the true color journey, which was that. The Swedish market was too small for us to feel like we're doing something valuable enough. I don't know how to quantify valuable enough, but we just felt like, you know, we can do more than this. And and so we promised to to each other that, you know, the next thing we do is going to, we're going to go global from day one. And when we built out Truecaller, we started out with a global perspective, like we want this to work in every corner of the world and, and for everyone. So when you start with that mentality, you try to resolve issues or problems 
and you look at those problems in a different way, like from a different lens. As an example, we would, uh, you know, obsess about the phone number series of, you know, any country so that uh, when a user is trying to verify or like get onboarded and they have a geo phone number and this geo phone number is a new number series. It didn't exist before. So would you use conventional, you know, libraries that are out there to, to kind of try to authorize or approve these uh, number series before you verify your user? You would be leaving a lot of users out in the cold because these uh, number series, you know, they keep popping up in different countries all the time. And, and we would, you know, obsess about reading the logs and just going through and seeing like, oh, can we see patterns of these phone number series coming up and, and proving them manually and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we looked at things very differently. We also wanted to build something that would work globally, which means that it had to be for everyone, meaning we, we didn't leave any OS out in the cold. Like uh, initially we built for um, Windows Mobile, for Symbian, for BlackBerry, for Android, for iOS, etc. And, you know, there was no OS that we left on the table. So so we really built for everyone. And, and that was actually one of the keys to the success of Truecaller, which we didn't get into in the, in the virality part, because it wasn't really because of virality. It was a different factor. But we built for Symbian uh, at the time when everyone was basically only looking for iOS and we built for Android when everyone was looking at iOS. And what happened was that Nokia had only two apps to promote in their strong markets. It was WhatsApp and it was Truecaller. So they promoted the hell out of out of WhatsApp and Truecaller. And when those users, you know, eventually a year later, when those users would um, get an Android phone, the first apps that they would download would naturally be WhatsApp and Truecaller. So, so, you know, that was something that was really key to our success. And I know Nokia hasn't gotten any cred uh, for it, but, uh, you know, uh, they were an important part of the journey, even though I don't think that they know what impact they had necessarily, or they probably, some people probably know, but the, the impact that they had on WhatsApp's journey and Truecaller's journey. That, that's phenomenal to hear. I mean, that answer in and out has this evident desire to just achieve so much and be ambitious and confident to, you know, go up there and achieve that goal that it speaks volumes of the journey in and of itself. And I absolutely love that because the desire is very, very evident. And that's, I think, the hunger every founder and entrepreneur needs to have while starting off that journey and staying ahead of the curve like you did, having done the due diligence and wanting to make that mark. So superb to hear that. I think moving ahead, I would like to understand, you know, a bit about how the kind of, we've spoken about scale, the global footprint, but how was it that you managed the team sort of a culture, right? Like, I think we've spoken about the team organization bit, but was there any evident thing that you did on the culture bit that really scaled the organization or contributed to how team members would actually join Truecaller? Because given that it was a global product, you naturally needed a lot of fresh talent coming out from different geographies and it's decentralized in itself, right? So if you could talk to us quickly about that, I think that would be great. Yeah, so you know, me and Alan, uh, when we started out being based out of Sweden, and there's not a lot of entrepreneurs with kind of the background me and Alan has being immigrants. 
we always thought it was difficult, more more difficult, and we were always told by our parents that we had to work twice as hard as the average Swede to be successful in Sweden. So, um, you know, when we when we started out on our entrepreneurial journey, we early on decided that we would be driven by values and we would be um, pushing for, uh, you know, recruiting underdogs, if you will. Because we saw ourselves as underdogs, and I think you know there's there's a hunger in underdog that is really hard to quantify, but it's like it's just there, and when you see it, you know it, and you know that they're they're gonna accomplish so much. Obviously, we didn't talk about it in that sense, but what we did say was that we wanted to recruit people from all around the world because we're building a product for people all around the world. So, um, you know, uh, in one of the instances, we were speaking to one of the Swedish investors and just give you a nuance of, you know, the different conversations that happened at the time. We're speaking to the Swedish investor, very prominent Swedish investor, and they asked us how we're going to build out the org and stuff like that. And we said, we're, you know, we have people from 20 different countries at the moment and we're going to build out and we're going to recruit the best people, etc. And they very bluntly asked us, like, why are you recruiting people from around the world? The best engineers are here in Stockholm. And we said to ourselves, like we never told them, but we thought to ourselves, uh, you know, the best engineers are out in the world. Like, it doesn't matter if they're in Sweden or if they're, you know, some, they went to this university or that university. It might as well be a person from uh, India or from, you know, Middle East, w- wherever it is. Like, it doesn't matter. We have a lot of people from Latin America or Brazil here as well. And I mean, fantastic engineers from Eastern Europe, fantastic engineers. Why would you just say like the Stockholm University people are the best? You know, so we didn't really understand that. And to contrast that, we also, you know, when when Sequoia was investing in TrueColor, we're basically getting along really well. And we went out for dinner here in Stockholm. The Sequoia team flew over. And during the dinner, we asked them, why do you want to invest in TrueColor? Like there's so many companies, I'm sure there's so many companies in India, why do you want to invest in TrueColor based out of Stockholm from the India fund? And, you know, then they talked about like how the Sequoia founders were uh, really kind of underdogs. They were immigrants in, in, in the U.S. And part of their thing is to invest in these underdogs because they always think that they will go the extra mile uh, to, to get things done. And they saw that with us. We hadn't, we had never thought about it the same way, but I think they put it very nicely like that. So that's been one thing that we've been focusing on, like creating opportunities for the people who may not be getting that opportunity initially. And the other thing is, you know, today we have some 40, 45 different nationalities among the True Color employees probably some 50, 60 different languages being spoken. So that was always important to us, like that we would capture the best people from around the world and make sure that uh, they see that they have an opportunity with uh, with TrueColor. And that, uh, you know, when you start to re- recruit those people, they start to recruit those people as well, et cetera. And so it, it kind of replicates down or trickles down into the organization. So so I think that's been a, a large part of part of it. The second point I wanted to mention, uh, which is shorter, but, you know, being value driven, we set out values uh, for the company 
very early on and, you know, made sure that the whole organization was part in creating those values. So it wasn't something that was dictated from me and me and Alan, but rather something that we all jointly agreed on and kind of translated on into like, how does this play out? Like when we say be fearless, what does it mean when we say you know, get shit done. What does it mean when we say, uh, you know, help each other? What does it mean? And, and you know, it can mean different things to different people. So just making sure that we're all aligned before we decide on these values. So that was a, another exercise that we've done and that uh, we did very early on and that we keep repeating every now and then just to get everyone back on the boat uh, to think about the values and how it affects them. Awesome. I think I truly love that because rooting for the underdogs and, you know, genuinely having that inclusion, value-driven, diverse culture is something that you spoke about and is so important yet not very often practiced. But to see you be an example for everyone out there is such an awesome thing to see. So thanks again, Nami, for, you know, walking us through that. That was terrific to hear. I have one last question on the product building journey after which we can wrap up with a couple of final questions on you. But given that, you know, I've seen you and Alan mention that from day one, the ideas and the vision has always also been to create the best communication experience, right? Uh, so on a product level, how do the smaller aspects so from, you know, blocking and uh, understanding caller IDs to messaging to fintech and to other product features that go into the crux of building true color? Can you perhaps talk about how the company and the leadership thinks about the smaller steps required in achieving that larger sort of a goal of creating the best communication experience. I think that would be great to understand as to how the innovation remains a constant, the experimentation remains a constant, even at scale and how you can keep continue to work towards that larger goal because you're creating a company which will go, which will outlive everyone. And I really hope it does. And it's a legendary institution in itself. So it'll be great to understand the smaller nuances that go into building that. So, so great question. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, when we think about communication, we think about two specific parts of communication and one is safety and one is efficiency. So what we try to build for is, you know, either safety or efficiency or both, uh, basically, you know, the overlap. And you could argue caller ID and call blocking are specifically those kind of things. Like it's much more efficient if you tell me who is calling. It's also much safer for me if I get to know if it's a spammer and, and, uh, or a fraudster and I get to, to block it. So that was kind of the core of where it started. But then over time, you know, when you're working in the communication space and there's safety and efficiency that you're focusing on, you also have to take into account that we're trying to build for the masses. We're trying to build for the world. And, you know, you could uh, do that by building walled gardens, or you can try to integrate with so much, as much as possible. And we've gone the second route, like trying to integrate with as much as possible. Like it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm on Gmail and you're, and you're on Hotmail, like we can still email each other and, you know, your name actually still pops up. When, when we email each other. Uh, it's not just your email address, it's your name, right? So it's really odd when you don't have that in the smartphone, you know? So that was really where we started out. And then the question becomes like, okay, do you, do you dive deeper into walled gardens or do you try to play in the larger ecosystem? And, you know, we've tried to build everything for the larger ecosystem and trying to create compatibility and not trying to create walled gardens. But in the cases where, you know, uh, walled gardens 
are necessary or are the only necessary way forward, then, you know, we'd have to go with that. So for instance, we have our own VoIP functionality, but, you know, I would much have preferred, and we pitched this to Google many years ago, like, why don't you put VoIP as part of the Google Play services so that every company that wants to can enjoy this and benefit from, uh, you know, the VoIP capabilities? Why are you building it into Google Duo, video calling and voice calling? Like, just make it part of the Android ecosystem. So there's an equivalent to FaceTime and iMessage, etc. So open it up so you can even do it on, on uh, Apple phone. But they didn't want to go that route. They wanted to go the walled garden route. And, and that meant for us that we automatically had to move to a walled garden kind of uh, thing and building our own VoIP uh, solution. But, you know, we much prefer open garden where everyone can uh, like inclusion and all these things uh, like uh, it's uh, really important to us so uh, you know when when we're looking at retaining the innovation within the company these are the things that we're thinking about and getting like all the BU leads and every team member to kind of uh, try to think about and and then once you know they set up their roadmap which they do by themselves there's a there's the editorial process of, you know, going through what we call the business uh, review, which happens twice a year. So we basically go through the plans. We uh, may suggest uh, changes to it, but most often we don't. And once that uh, plan is uh, approved, you know, you really have a full stack team, a leadership, like advisors around, etc. Like that, that team is fully equipped to go and execute on their mission. And a lot of really fantastic, small even products have come out of this. Like yeah, if you've noticed the call alert uh, functionality where, where we send you, you know, a notification saying Jivraj is about to call you, those, those kind of ideas come from the team because they're trying to fix or solve a different problem. In reality, we were trying to solve um, issue with iOS where you can't do caller ID in the same way. So we built it for iOS and then we realized like, hey, why don't we, like, what would it look like if we had this for Android as well? Like, what would be the benefit? And then after a while, you start to realize, like, when you experience the iOS app, you're like, wow, it's really cool. It's actually telling me who's about to call me. That could be valuable for our Android users as well. And then you just ship it over. Obviously, there's a huge difference in the scale of that, et cetera, given our user base. But, uh, you know, so it took some time to engineer that product. But the ideas really come from the teams. Like, as they try to solve one problem, they figure something, and it becomes a one plus one equals three situation. So that's really the, the culture that we try to cultivate. Spectacular. I think, again, I, I love that given that, you know, you talk about the open garden approach and integrating as many value solutions as possible for the end consumer, which is what eventually matters and is the core of a great product, which True Caller evidently is wonderful. I think this has been super, super awesome. And as we go on to the end portions of this episode, I think I want to just take a couple of minutes to understand more about you as a person, you as the co-founder, and you know, a large part of Nami, the person, as opposed to how we've spoken about True Caller. So I think the first question there is, you know, the evident ambition, confidence, vision is is there just from that day one. And I remember you talking about one of those stories about how you talk about yours and Alan's influence coming from your mothers, right? People shouldn't work because they need to or have to. They should work because they want to. I, I love that. And that stuck with me, right? And I really believe that that's such a powerful quote in itself, right? But uh, what I'm trying to understand here is if you can talk about the core motivations that drive you as a person, that keep you at it, right? That make you dream high enough. We have 
the IPO coming up. And Truecaller has done, I can't speak enough of how well and tremendous Truecaller has eventually done, right? But at the at the back end, there's so much that goes on and there's efforts of years, sleepless nights that go into it, right? So if you can just like ponder a bit upon that aspect of NAMI and talk to us about how that is built into your system, I think that would be tremendous to hear. I'll, I'll uh, take a stab at it. <laughs> I realize the tough questions are now coming. Uh, so so uh, I think one of the strengths that me and Alan has are that we have the same value system. Like we were brought up with the same type of values and it made our partnership really, really strong. So whenever we've had ups and downs throughout the journey, we've always kind of been able to uh, help each other, not necessarily you know help each other as in i will go and do this for you but you know when when something is really not working out and you uh, start to feel uh, slightly depressed by it you know you open your heart and you pour out you know whatever is in there and then the other person between us always takes this role of like it'll be fine we'll just go do this and that even though that person may like you know if if i'm depressed alan will be equally at least uh, depressed but he will still take on that role and be like no it'll be fine don't worry we'll just do this and that make something up and it'll make me feel a bit better then tomorrow you know we we go back at it together and and then i realize that oh actually he was uh, feeling very down about it as well and and uh, you know that partnership has really allowed us to to excel and to learn from each other and to to do better together but if we're only looking at uh, you know my background and and things like that very similar i mean me and alan have very similar backgrounds like families came to came to sweden always had this underdog mentality it was kind of fed to us by our parents really like it wasn't that we thought that that was the case we thought sweden and we still think sweden is a fantastic country with a lot of opportunities but our parents saw it differently because they had to struggle with learning the language and a bunch of different things right getting a job getting into like getting jobs even uh, etc and and they had these struggles and and they kind of fed fed us with that notion of like it's going to be really difficult so get prepared get prepared and then once you grow up and you realize that it's not it's not that difficult necessarily. There was difficult moments for sure uh, in like getting your first job and these kind of things. But once you get into it, it's kind of okay. And I think a lot of people go through the same kind of struggles. But then you realize that you still have this hunger. You want to accomplish twice as much. Like, why is this, you know, is this, is this it? You know, you, you think to yourself, is this it? So uh, I think that is... Uh, Part of the hunger that both of us had and why our partnership really became uh, fantastic and you know that didn't change until we had kids so when you have kids something else happens right before you think is this it and, and now you're thinking like now i have something that i'm afraid of losing because before i didn't have anything i was afraid of losing but now i have something i'm afraid of losing and that becomes a different type of thought process in itself as well. So I think, you know, over time, things have things have changed for us, but we still have that hunger. Now, you know, with age and these kind of things you, and maturity, your uh, our willingness to take risk is 
is uh, really high, but I think that, you know, naturally what you see in many leaders is that over time, the willingness to risk, take risks uh, becomes dampened and you have to motivate yourself. And, and I can't, you know, uh, expect my parents to give me that motivation anymore. So um, that, like I have my thing that gives me motivation uh, and Alan has his thing, but, you know, they were at different points of our times, uh, of our journey, when we realized we had these uh, different new things that would give us that energy to to uh, take risks. So, so I think, you know, not sure if I'm answering the question, but that's uh, how our uh, willingness to take risks and this uh, drive has really come from. No, no, I think uh, that that answers a lot of it because. Like you talk about that progression, right? But the underlying hunger that is so evident, right? Like, is this it? Like, that's a question that so many of us continue to ask ourselves as well. And I think to be able to answer that and strive towards achieving and increasing the bounds of what is achievable for us as people is spectacular. So that was fabulous to hear, honestly. Thanks, Nami, for that. Um, This has been spectacular. I mean, like for the last question, I don't think there could be a fitting end to this marvelous conversation. But uh, going with the stereotypical one, given that, you know, there have been such a diverse set of experiences with you, Caller, and the journey, I hope, is only getting started and there's going to be so much of success that lies ahead. Can you perhaps just ponder upon the last decade or so and talk to us about, you know, the most important learnings that you've picked up from your journey and perhaps leave us with a couple of last learnings from your amazing founder journey? Well, to keep, I mean, we've had many, many, many learnings, but to kind of pick up on some of the things that we we talked about, I think that, you know, uh, for a lot of people and, uh, you know, me and Alan vividly try to express this among Swedish entrepreneurs, but I think it could be uh, make sense to also mention that to other aspiring uh, entrepreneurs, even in India, that, you know, Many times you think that you have to build for your home market. You think that you have to build for India is big enough, blah, 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 like all these uh, things. And and surely it is as opposed to Sweden. But, you know, uh, the reality is for us, India found us. Like if we had that mentality and we would be, you know, US would have been a fantastic market too, or Europe would have been a fantastic market. We could have aspired to that. But instead, like going global and really making that, taking that as part of the ethos that, you know, this is a pretty strict guideline that we need to follow, that we're building products for the world and not just for this specific country or for this specific group of people. I think that's, uh, I mean, if that's not what you're doing, if you're not building a niche product, then, uh, you know, going global and kind of letting the world figure you you out and you figuring the world out is a really important first first step that I think a lot of people miss. They're thinking like, I will go from, I mean, in India, it's such a massive country. You're talking about, you know, I've First, get this state, then I will try to expand to that state. And then, you know, I need to get uh, critical mass here and there, etc. Instead of just allowing the world to figure you out and you figuring the world out. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the learnings, especially for you know, aspiring entrepreneurs. If I mention anything from the from the investor journey, investors journey that we made, 
think yeah, one of the key learnings was that you should you should I'm I'm biting my tongue here to make sure I say it uh, right. But you know, there's always going to be uh, investors that just bring money, and there's going to be the smart money, and there's going to be all these kind of different things. But what you really need to figure out is who is uh, your partner on that journey. Like yeah, when you're when you think about the different uh, VCs, etc., don't don't think about them as a label. Like uh, you know, it, it's still an individual person that's going to sit on your board, and it's really important. We've had such a fantastic support from Shailesh uh, at Sequoia, and and I think that you know we've been very lucky uh, to have him on board. I've seen a lot of fantastic people at Sequoia in general, but also I've seen many of our other VCs where it's been very dependent on who is the person who leads the round and etc and you know making sure that there's a that you click with that person it's going to be so important don't just take the money for that like in that case already from the beginning ask if you can switch partner or something like if, if it doesn't work out so uh, i think that's important as well like just just to make sure that you have a sound sound board and, and that you can focus on building the business and they can focus on helping you as opposed to you know uh, troubles that come can come along the way awesome i think the global mindset from day zero and finding the right partners along the way and not going for just money because i think through the journey of a decade long or maybe 20 30 years there's nothing which just becomes capital or there are no variables which come in singularity. Everything comes in packages. And in the case of investors, it is the board and the uh, people that come along with it and finding the right partners is definitely a great cure. Wow, I think uh, this has been so wonderful. I We're finally at the end of the episode, but I wish I could continue longer. But this has been spectacular, Nami. I mean, to talk to somebody who's created a product you truly admire as a consumer first, and for somebody building the podcast for the last uh, nine, 10 months, this is a true, true pleasure. And I cannot express how honored I am to have this opportunity. So I would like to thank you for being on the show and spending uh, your time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And this is going to be so helpful for everybody. Thank you so much. For sure. Thanks a lot, Shivraj. And thanks for doing this. It's uh, an amazing initiative. And, and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks again. Phenomenal. I really loved this conversation. The truly genuine aura and the candid learnings wonderfully stood out for me. The humility and simplicity has been infectious. What stood out for me is how the incredible ambition has driven Nami, Alan and their team to build a global legendary company. That was it from the 49th episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast, Incredible Ambition with Nami Zaringlam of True Calling. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Do follow the podcast on the audio streaming platform of your choice, drop in a review, and subscribe to our WhatsApp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox. Thanks again. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you recall. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building.